my name is Eric, and I welcome you to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast, where we, as LGBTQ plus citizens, come together to inspire and educate each other on who we are and our respective countries and professions. Through topics and guest interviews, our Black Gay Diaspora podcast celebrates individuals making a difference. Loving who we love is not a choice. Being who we're meant to be can be. We are here. You are welcome. We are community. Hello, my name is Eric, your host of Our Black Gay Diaspora podcast. For this sit down, I am joined by Montreal-based Canadian author Russell Brooks. He is the author of four suspense thrillers, which include Pandora's Succession, Unsavory, Delicacies, Chili Run, and The Demeter Code. His most recent is titled Jam Run. It's Russell's first Afro-Caribbean LGBTQ-themed crime novel and the second in the Eddie Barrow crime novel series. For those of you who enjoy, quote, suspense thrillers with conspiracies, martial arts, sex, betrayal, and revenge, then you don't need to look any further, end quote. I look forward to hearing more about who Russell is as a Black K professional, and he has the distinction of being my first Canadian guest. No pressure. <laughs> so without further ado... Greetings and welcome. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much for having me. Invite me on your show. I don't have to say this, but I'll just say it for the audience. We had a recording set up for yesterday, but there were technical difficulties. So actually, I do say that to say thank you, Russell, for agreeing to reschedule. You're welcome. So was that the flag from Barbados? Yes, that's where my family's originally from. My roots are always going to be in Barbados, even though I was born here in Montreal. Have you visited the country a lot? Oh, yes. I visited there a few times. The last time I was there was Christmas 2017, and I stayed there till just a little bit after New Year's in 2018. So it's always nice to be down in Barbados. When it's frigid cold up here in Montreal, nice Christmas without snow, very pleasant. You can go outside in shorts and tank top. You go to the beach. Okay. You're the second person with that family lineage. I had a guest, Donya Pig-Goat. Yes. So, yeah, it's great to hear Barbados being represented. Rihanna would be proud. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So how's your day shaping up so far? Well, my day is very quiet. I'm just taking more and more time for myself because I've been always running up and down busy. I know I need to take a break because it's come to the point where I'm forgetting which day it is. Anybody that I've met yesterday or the day before, if you ask me, what did you do yesterday or the day before, I won't even remember. So, Thank you for sharing that. You're being transparent. And if I'm to be transparent to our technical difficulties, I shared with you yesterday that I just arrived about almost two weeks ago here in Cape Town, South Africa, after being back in Sweden for a few months. And after we ended and we rescheduled, I was like, I haven't really given myself permission to kind of slow down to recognize that I'm in a different country, a different energy. I'm in the same time zone as Sweden. So I didn't have to deal with the jet lag, but I still need to slow down to kind of catch my breath. So thank you for leading with that example. Of course, South Africa is one of the countries I would like to visit. I'm interested in visiting Rwanda. I was already in Madagascar in 1997 for Les Jeux de la Francophonie because I used to be a track athlete. I represented Team Quebec in the 100 meters, the 200 meters, and the 4x100 meter relay. 
they're so friendly. They're so human. I mean, they see me and they know I'm a foreigner. They were so appreciative of things, everything that we take for granted. It was just uh, a real eye-opener for me. Yeah, you brought up your athletic career, and I did see you had a recent posting about that in connection to a particular day. Was that just in college, or was that a professional road for you? The picture of me in, in the Team Canada outfit in yes. full action, that was that picture <laughs> yes. was taken at the World University Games in 1999 in Palma de Mallorca, Spain. Boy, I had a great time there. Oh, my goodness. It was so hot that I can understand why they have siestas over there in Spain. Did you ever think about pursuing that as a professional career? Running track and field, yes. That was my dream to go to the Olympics. But unfortunately, I ran into so many problems, ran into problems with proper coaching. And then there was the injuries. It was very difficult. And even though there were some many good memories, there are many bad memories as well that I don't like to, I just don't like to talk about. Well, thank you for allowing us to stay on that for a brief moment. Of course, that's not why you're here on this platform. I know you as an author. And I want to say congratulations on the success of your latest novel called Jam Run. Thank you. Which I know is inspired by a real life tragedy. Dwayne Jones, a Jamaican 16 year old who was murdered in 2013, before we get into how it inspired your work, how was it for you when you first heard about this this tragedy? As I've told everyone, when I first read the news about this young guy who showed up at a dance party outside of Montego Bay dressed as a woman, nobody knew until he made the fatal mistake of confiding in a girl from his church. She outed him to all of her male friends, and that's when everything went downhill. Just fast forward to the next day, his body was found. He had been beaten. He had been stabbed, shot, and run over of the vehicle. It wasn't just the fact that he was murdered. It was the way that he was murdered. Anyone could be so evil to do something like that to another human being. It's no secret Jamaica has a bad reputation when it comes to the fair and equal treatment of the LGBTQ community down there. I was there in Jamaica last January. It was kind of like a vacation for me, but at the same time, I took advantage of that time to visit every location where my story took place. And I have to be honest with you, everyone I met, I'd say 99% of the people I met were very, very warm, very friendly. Of course, I did not, that I'm, let's say, like LGBTQ or an ally or anything of that sort there. I went down there as a Canadian of Barbadian ancestry who was just there to enjoy themselves. I was treated very well. By the same token, I took a day trip to Kingston to visit one of my collaborators who was the assistant director of prosecutions. She helped me with the legal content of the story. One thing that's very important for me is that when I'm writing a story to make sure that my facts are correct. It's a crime thriller. So there is um, there are police procedures And I want to make sure that my laws are factually correct, that they're consistent with the story and the setting of the story, which takes place in Jamaica. I went to visit her and she showed me around Kingston. I met her in Spanish town, which is outside of Kingston. Now, she told me if I have a chance to visit KFC in Jamaica, because KFC in Jamaica is not the same KFC 
as in Canada or the United States. The different flavors, it's a more Jamaican-style Kentucky Fried Chicken. The first thing I noticed that there were several people around me, several guys that stood out. Not by the way they behaved, but it was more like the way they were dressed. They weren't effeminate. It was just the way that they acted. Let me just say my gaydar went off around these people here. And I said, okay, these are gays and lesbians. And one thing I noticed is that they hung around as a group. They sat together. And that's one thing I realized, okay, look, there's safety in numbers. And that's why they were staying together. There was also a friend of mine who came to Canada as a refugee. And I actually helped him. He left Jamaica because he did not feel safe there. He told me that everything is so underground. If you want to be safe and not be ostracized or be persecuted, you're forced to basically live underground. You were there for vacation, but you said you also use it as research and for fact-checking. Can you share how it influenced the premise of the novel Jam Run? One of the locations I visited was the the actual spot where Dwayne Jones was murdered. In the first chapter of Jam Run, the scene, I bring it to a location called Irwin, and the street name is Pega Road. That's the exact location where Dwayne Jones was murdered in real life. And I recreated that scene for the story. Actually, I just made a few changes because that neighborhood has changed a little bit since 2013. The nightclub or that bar does not exist anymore. It's now like a car graveyard. My guide who assisted me, his name is Norris Douglas of Real Tours Jamaica. He helped, um, helped me fact check all the Jamaican content while I was writing the story. Now, being there on site was a different experience. It didn't seem like the safest area. Even in the daytime? Even in the daytime. Being there, there are so many things that I saw that I would never have, that I would not have included in the book had I not been there myself. And Eddie Barrow, this is his second time being showcased in one of your literary works. Yes, Thank you for the copy of it. You're welcome. I'll be honest, I, I assume because, you know, you're part of the LGBTQ community that the, the protagonist would be would be gay okay. or um, from the community. How is it writing from a straight person's perspective? Well, um, I'll let you in on a little secret. When I first wrote Chill Run, originally Eddie Barrow was going to be gay. Mm-hmm. Okay. He was going to be a gay black male. Afro-Caribbean male. When I submitted the first chapter to my content editor, the one I had at the time, she told me that she didn't think it would be a good idea to have a gay male lead. Said, Russell, since your biggest audience is in the United States, America is not ready for a gay character, a gay protagonist. So I decided, look, I'll make him uh, gay friendly. There's some LGBTQ content in Chill Run, but it's very minimal. It wasn't the focus of the story, and certainly not as much as in Jam Run. The plots of Chill Run and Jam Run are totally different. In Chill Run, Eddie Barrow, he's trying to become an author. But in Jam Run, he's already established as an author, and he just happens to be there in Jamaican Montego Bay for a book signing when he witnesses a savage murder 
and he gets roped into trying to solve it. Have you been able to hear responses from people from Jamaica or from the Caribbean about this particular work? About Jamrun? Unfortunately, I have reached out to reviewers or book bloggers in the Caribbean, and unfortunately, I haven't gotten any responses. All the reviews that are posted right now are from people from either here in Canada or the United States, and there are a few in Great Britain. The responses were positive. In fact, Jamrun. It's my blackest novel to date, and it's my best-reviewed novel to date. On Goodreads, it's all four- and five-star reviews with one three-star review. I want to have more reviews from the Afro-Caribbean community, but it seems I have a little bit more difficulty reaching out to them. The novel was released this past May, if I'm correct. March 31st. March 31st, yeah. yeah. So, well, I'm just being optimistic. We're still early. <laughs> yeah, it's still early. Like, you know, when I went to Barbados, I was in Barbados. Let me see. When I was there, and I believe it was 2013, it was right before the Demeter Code came out. I was a guest on Good Morning Barbados, or I should say, oh, it's, wow. I think it's called Morning Barbados, which is like Good Morning America. I was a guest because one of the hosts, she read Children. Well, her words were, this beats a movie. And she had a lot of fun reading Chill Run, and she gave a very good endorsement of it. So I think part of the reason is part of the barrier. I'm so far away from Barbados and the Caribbean that it's mostly about access as well. So I just probably have to do a better job networking in the Caribbean to get more attention. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, just to go back to when I asked you about being surprised about the protagonist, that helped me with my own assumptions or prejudices because as soon as I started reading, I was like, well, James Baldwin, he wrote different characters and it did, they didn't have to be gay. And reading your book is reminding me that we don't have to just speak in our voice. If you have the talent, you can create the character. I want to use Jamron also as a means to introduce more LGBTQ characters. And this is something that readers can expect in my future novels as well. Now, for those of us who would like to buy Jam Run and your other works, where can we find them? Well, you can buy them on, you can find them on Amazon, barnesandnobles.com, and also on Kobo, and also on iTunes also. Oh, as an Audible. Oh, no, no, it's not Audible. It's only available as an ebook or as a soft cover paperback. Okay, okay. You were recently at the Motive Crime and Mystery Festival in Toronto. Were you a participant? Yes, I'm a member of the Crime Writers of Canada. So every year, Crime Writers of Canada has their own tent at the Motive Crime and Mystery Festival. This is my second time there. There's another um, a book fair in Toronto called the Word on the Street Book Fest, which is massive, 10 times bigger. I had my best performance there. Well, when I say performance, I had the best sales. I had a record of 48 books sold in two days. My top seller was Jam Run. I only came down with 20 copies. I did not expect that I would need any more, but all 20 copies sold out in two days. And these are all physical copies? Yes, these are all physical copies, though. That's good to hear. So how is the writing process for you? Like, are you one of these authors who you hear some need to go off when they're ready to commit to a project and say rent a cabin somewhere and be alone or isolated from the general population. How is the writing process for you? 
Well, for me, um, I can write anywhere I go. Most of my writing is at home. I always start out with an outline. I have my index cards. Whenever I have an idea, I write down the notes until I have the beginning, the middle, and the end. I will develop from what I wrote on the index cards and flesh it out. And I'll do the research to back up what I write. Because for me, it's very important that everything be as factually correct as possible. Some of the things that I go through as an author is people saying, oh, that would never happen in real life, or this would never happen in real life. In my first novel, Pandora's Succession, which is about a biological weapon that was accidentally unearthed by the melting of the polar ice caps, a prehistoric microbe that resurfaced as a result of global warming and that was later weaponized. Okay, Some people were saying, well, that would never happen in real life. They're saying that viruses or microbes cannot survive in the cold for so long. I'll just find an article in Science Magazine and I would forward them the link and say, you were saying? <laughs> so that sort of thing. And this is probably one of the most important things, especially when you're an independent writer. It's very important for you to be very credible. I mean, how can I say it? Years ago, it was much more difficult to be an independent writer to write independently or self-publish your books. Because back then the mentality was that, look, if you're not picked up by a traditional publisher, then it means that your book is rubbish. I have to get ahead of that because I know that many people are going to be thinking that even before they even give me a chance. I have to make sure that I appear to be knowledgeable about the subject matter and even be an expert on the subject matter in order to gain the same respect. Pandora's Succession and the Demeter Code, these are spy novels, and I did my research on how the CIA operates and how um, other spy agencies or the intelligence community operates. I even consulted with someone who studied in the field and to make sure I had all my facts correct. What's your educational background? Because you sound like a researcher to the point of you being able to recognize when something doesn't feel right. I know I've seen movies or programs or even read novels and I've had those similar experiences. Like I am not a doctor, but this doesn't feel right. So yeah, what's, what's your educational background? I went to Indiana University on a track and field scholarship and I graduated with a bachelor's in biology and a minor in psychology. When you're writing a report, it's important to always back up your sources. And it shows in the reviews I've been getting. Most of them were were not in our age generation, but they were older age generation from Great Britain, from the United States, and even Australia. They all read Pandora's Succession. And I'll never forget one lady from Australia. She said she enjoyed Pandora's Succession. However, she said that it scared her. It scared her because it was too realistic. She was too scared to read the Demeter Code because she felt that she wouldn't be able to sleep at night because it was too realistic thinking that something like this could happen in real life. And the real life event that inspired Jam Run, I think it touched many readers. It touched them deep down inside to think that something like this so horrific could happen to, to someone. In fact, the, the last review for Jam Run was um, reviewed by a mother she has a, a child who's gay. And from her perspective as a mother, 
She said that there are many parts of the story that were very difficult for her to get through. Okay, It's not just about entertainment, but I want people to feel the characters, to know what they're going through, to empathize with them. This worked well with her. I mean, I know in my lifetime, things have gotten better as far as the legal rights that we have. And, and some of the social things have changed, but we still are needing to shine a spotlight as you're doing on the realities of what one doesn't want to happen, but just to be mindful of that. Yes. Because we are not the only ones can do the work. Our allies and, and those in our family circles can help with that too. Exactly. As an author, as a professional, have you ever been encouraged to downplay your queerness? Huh. Downplay? Well, I have to be honest with you, Eric. I'm not officially out. Oh, okay. One of the reasons I agreed to this interview here is because I want to come out. This form right here is the first time that I've actually officially come out. So Okay. How do you feel about that right now? Well, um, I mean, it's a little bit liberating. Growing up, it was very difficult. When I was in high school, you know, you just think that you're going through a phase. You're just trying to blend in. You're trying to fit in. I would just hear things. And unfortunately, the things that I heard were always the negative ones. So when I was hearing all these negative things, I said, well, that's not me. I don't sexually assault little boys, you know, or children. That was the myth. I've heard far worse things. And I said, well, that's not me. I'm not a bad guy. I've always treated everyone with respect. A lot of the misinformation about the LGBTQ community back in those days and I believe this is one of the reasons several people are forced to remain in the closet. And also the absence of the non-visibility of LGBTQ people of color. That is not very predominant. So I'm growing up thinking, okay, this is probably just um, a white thing. This is not something that uh, should be affecting black people. And what made them even more complicated is that when I started running track and field, I joined a track club and the track club I joined predominantly had Jamaican athletes. Muslim were all older than I was. So I was the black sheep out of this group here. So I'm the only one of Barbadian ancestry who was born here. Once they got into the Jamaican Patois, I couldn't understand a word they were saying. And I knew I got the feeling that they were mocking me <laughs> several times. So the only thing I can do to gain their respect and show them how fast I can run. And I was faster than most of them. They couldn't mock me as an athlete. But on the other side, I overheard many homophobic comments coming from them, jokes and everything like that. I showed up, I was very nervous at times. Any of those discussions of gay or lesbian, I stayed away from those conversations. These were some of the many challenges I faced when I was growing up. Eventually, when I went to, when I got into university, I was still dating girls at the time. It was only when I was in university that something was struggling to get out. I had these drives. I had these feelings. I had these emotions, but I was still trying to convince myself that, you know, it's just a phase. I'll grow out of it. But I came to realize it's, it wasn't a phase anymore. And I had to think of my career 
if I'm going to go to the Olympics and I'm going to get a sponsor, well, then you have to be on your best behavior and keep yourself in the closet. And all the work and effort I put into training, trying to become um, a track athlete to to go to the Olympics or represent Canada, that's going to go out the window. It was a big, big struggle. Wow. Congratulations. I know it takes a lot of courage to do what you're doing right now. What is your plan after this? Do you have a a network to um, kind of share how you're feeling after this? I have a few friends from the LGBTQ community. Some of them are couples and my former priest. Okay. She's retired right now. She's one of the first priests here in Montreal that advocated for LGBTQ rights. She and I get along very well. It's very comforting to know that there are people out there who will care about me and who will respect me no matter what and who will support me. These are the people I want to hang around with more and more. Very much so. Yeah, I came out in my late 20s and you just brought back a lot of those memories and those emotions. But again, it's it's a reminder that it's never too late to own who we are. So congratulations again. Yeah. Well, thank you. When did you discover your gifts as a writer? I was writing since I was in elementary school. Just like, I would just do little short stories just for fun. When I was in grade six, I wrote my first detective story. Okay, I just call it a story. It was probably about 10, 12 pages long or 15 pages. I don't even remember. I was in class one afternoon and my French teacher, she caught me red-handed with it and she took it from me. She read it to the class. <laughs> I thought I was in trouble. I thought she was trying to embarrass me or that say, look, Russell is going to get in trouble for this because he's not paying attention in class. But no, what she did instead is that when she read the story in front of the whole class from beginning to end, she told everyone, okay, let's give Russell a round of applause for such wow, good work. That's beautiful. Before she gave it back to me, I saw her writing a little note. And when she gave it back to me, I read the note. She said that, I like this story, but next time, Russell, one of these days, I want to see your books published. In Quebec, we don't have junior high. It's not like the rest of Canada. We go straight from grade six to grade seven in high school, and it's from mm-hmm. grade seven to 11. Now, when I started in high school in grade seven, I decided I was going to write my first novel. I had a typewriter, and then a family friend, he donated his electric typewriter to help me. So, yeah. I wrote my first book on a typewriter. I wrote it, then I abandoned it. I started writing again, and I abandoned it. I finished high school, I finished university, and then I read an interesting crime thriller, or I should say a suspense thriller by Vince Flynn. It was called Term Limits. It was the first time I actually read a spy novel that really caught my attention. I said to myself, wow, there's actually a genre for this in the market. And this is what triggered me to say, look, let me start back writing, writing that book I started when I was 12 years old. This time when I wrote it, of course, I was much more educated because of my biology degree. So I used my biology degree to help create a fictitious biological weapon and rewrite after rewrite after rewrite, just to make a long story short, the story I started when I was 12 years old, 
finally got published in 2010. It was called Pandora's Succession. Mm. It would have been 2019 when I linked up with one of my friends from high school. We had coffee one afternoon and the subject of our grade six teacher, Madame Marie Bédard, came up. And I'll say myself, I've always wanted to get back in touch with her. I never forgot what she told me when I was in grade six. And she said, well, look, Russell, her daughter is one of my students. She linked me with her on Facebook. Mm. I friended her on Facebook. And within minutes, she friended me back. She remembered me. She remembered me. I uh, did a selfie video and I had my tablet where I went on Kindle. I just recorded a message for her saying that I remember what you told me when I was in grade six several years ago. I decided to act on your advice. And as you can see today, at the time I had four books out. Mm -hmm. I scrolled through each one of them and I said, thank you, Madame Bedard, for believing in me. I will never forget what you said and what you did for me. She wrote back to me. She said, Russell, I never forgot you. You're just one of those students that a teacher will never forget, no matter how hard they try. And, <laughs> and I said, okay, I hope that's a good thing. You know, yes. She was at the hair salon getting her hair done at the time. She was actually sitting in the chair getting her hair done when she watched my video. And then she saw me scroll through all the books that I wrote. She told me that she cried. It made her cry. She immediately bought all of them. <laughs> She's an angel. She, first of all, recognized your talent, your gifts, and let you know it. You know, for you to find her years later and let her know how she impacted you, that what she does as an educator or what she did as an educator did not go in vain. Yes. I'm sure for her, that was a, quite a beautiful thing to come aware of. Yeah. I met her on March 31st. She came to my book launch party. And, wow. you know, when I saw her, you know, it's just like um, someone was cutting onions in the room. I mean, mm. it was hard for me to hold back my emotion after all these years, you know, yeah. and she still looks great. She still looks the same way. It was really a touching moment. I'm kind of absorbing that right now. It's <laughs> definitely a story that I can see cinematically, just such an inspirational story. So uh, thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. Hearing you speak French reminds me that you're, you know, you're oui. from Ici au from Québec, Montreal. nous sommes, moi je suis complètement bilingue, je parle français et anglais. <laughs> uh, I speak both French and English. J'ai étudié pendant quatre ans quand j'étais jeune pour au lycée, mais uh, Spanish and Swedish mix in with me now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I went to Montreal in 2012. That was the first time I traveled outside of the United States by myself. And oh, I wow. love the city. But I also recognize that the French there, to my ear, sounded very different. It's very different from uh, the French that is spoken in France. If I were to meet someone from France, I can tell that they're not from Quebec you know, because the accent and even the expressions are different. Yeah. I hadn't spoken or tried to speak French in years. So I arrived like, oh, I have two years in high school, two years in college. I got this. And I went to my first place to eat and he spoke back to me, obviously, in French. And I was like, oof. <laughs> yes, but here's the here's yeah. the thing. Here in Quebec, there are language laws. The anglophones are driven crazy by all these language laws. The laws here in Quebec, 
if you have a business, then your signs have to be in, predominantly in French. If there's English, it has to be practically in fine print. And I don't know if you heard about this, but I say probably about 10 years ago, there was a big scandal here that was dubbed Pastigate, the Office Québécoise de la Langue Française. In other words, you know, their nickname as the language police that can actually go from business to business. If it's not the code, if there's not predominantly French, you can get fined. When they went to an Italian restaurant, an Italian restaurant where the menus are in Italian, they got fined because there wasn't enough French. Now, this is an Italian restaurant that's serving Italian cuisine. I believe even the New York Times picked up on it. It was probably one of the most embarrassing moments for Quebec. No, let me tell you a funny story. When I went to France, I went to Paris for a track meet. <laughs> and one evening, me and my friends decided to go to McDonald's. I already knew what I wanted because my favorite sandwich is the McChicken sandwich. So here in Quebec, it's called Le Mac Poulet. Okay. Okay. It's not called McChicken. It's called the Mac Poulet. When I got to the counter, I, I asked for, uh, j'aimerais avoir un Mac Poulet, s'il vous plaît. I'd like to have mm -hmm. the Mac Poulet, please. And she was going, un quoi? Really? So I repeated the Mac Poulet. And she goes, le, le, le quoi? I was saying the word in, in French, okay, Mac Poulet, as I'm accustomed to saying here in Quebec, in Montreal. And I actually did the what, 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 like that, you know, to, to get her attention so she understand. And she goes, ah, tu veux le Mac Chicken? And I go, a what? <laughs> And that's when I looked at the menu and I noticed that the menu, it's not called Mac Poulet, it's called Le Mac Chicken. For me, it was like culture shock, okay? <laughs> so obviously in France, there's not the same xenophobia that the English is going to take over France as it is here in Quebec. That's one experience I'll never forget. Well, me coming from the U.S., I love language. I mean, I love words. I also write. So I think it's great because so many languages throughout human history have been lost. I hope I can say this as an American, but I do believe the stereotype is true that many of us, especially when we travel internationally, don't you speak English? And it's like, first of all, ask if you could speak English. Mm -hmm. Don't assume that everyone can speak it. And yeah. I think language is so important and with me being in Sweden, I, I try to learn it and as much as possible. I took classes. They always revert to English because they hear my accent if you're a native English speaker, but I try. Yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to keep your language. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. So, But it's funny to hear that you went to France, you know, the mother of the, the language, and you're like, you don't understand what I'm saying? <laughs> I, was, I was surprised. I mean... And, uh, you know, it was funny when I went to Germany, I was in Germany once for a track meet as well. And I went to a grocery store just to get some Red Bull. And I know that there are many people in Germany who do speak English, but in this grocery store, the employee I was speaking to, she was an older woman. She did not speak English. I had to be creative and act out that I wanted a soft drink. So I had to just pretend I'm holding the thing. Click, go, go, go. And she go, ah, she laughed and she brought me um, to the to the right aisle where, where I was able to find what I was looking for. But those are the great th things, I think, stories with especially traveling internationally. Like I said, I know some Swedish, 
you know, English is a Germanic language and so is Swedish, but Swedish is a bit closer to it. And like I went to Berlin three years ago, right before the pandemic for my birthday. And there were some words I was able to pick out because of the Swedish that I knew at the time. So it was interesting to discover that. Well, I want to thank you so much. This has been revealing, enlightening, educational. And um, I just wanted to ask you, do you have any final thoughts or insights? Well, uh, all I can say is that I listen to your podcast. I've been listening to it every day. Every time I drive my car, I have my cell phone on, tuned into Spotify. So the moment I turn on my car, I hear you and and I hear your guests. Actually, I heard about you through, as another writer, his name is Rashid Newsom. Yeah. Yes. We've connected through Twitter. And I think I was following the cast of Bel Air I also follow Jimmy Akinbola. He's one of the few celebrities who's actually responded to my tweets. And I said, wow. And I think it's through them that I connected with uh, Rashid Newsom. And I found him to be very interesting. And I started following his tweets. And I was looking for some advice on how to get more reviews. And he's the one that told me to try and connect with people who do podcasts. Since I didn't know any podcasters, I decided to go through the lists of people who have interviewed him on podcasts and I started to mm-hmm. contact them and that's how I discovered you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the network. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I've been following you, of course, on social media, on Instagram. So where else can we engage with you online? Well, I'm on Goodreads, goodreads.com. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. I have my own website, russellparkway.com. If you want to contact me about anything, feel free to do so. If I have a chance, I will respond. I try to respond to as many people as possible, provided I have the time. Okay. Well, I'll definitely be sharing your links and your information and you're insightful. And I definitely feel your intellect and and your passion for the truth. So thank you so much. Well, thanks. Thanks again for having me. I, I had a lot of fun this afternoon. Thank you for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment, and subscribe. Share with your friends, too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Our Black Gay Diaspora and on Twitter at BLK Gay Diaspora. Until next time.